Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the latest episode of the Broken Oars podcast with myself and Dr. Aaron Jackson, my esteemed colleague. Dr. Jackson, how are we today? Well, Lou, actually, I'm feeling a little bit shaken up. Can I tell you why I'm feeling a little bit shaken up? And it's I think you should. It's not to do with anything that we're about to discuss, which you've let me know about in advance, and which actually genuinely does signal the end of this podcast. Archie and Ethan didn't end it. Your your dalliance, your flirtation with rowing on things that are not rivers has frankly brought our longstanding friendship to an end. So why am I shaken up? Well, I was in Newcastle uh, the other day, and you can Google this, Loon, because I... I, I That'll get to any man. Yeah, well, well, it will get to any man. It's a place of darkness and barbarity. I was walking down Grey Street, which is one of the finest examples of Georgian architecture in the country, and I saw a little mouse on the pavement. And I thought, oh, someone's obviously shooting a live-action remake of Town Mouse, Country Mouse, and I tried to stay out of the way of the camera. But the mouse saw me and jumped across the road in fright, hit by a bus, everything everywhere. We're talking heart, spleen, liver, lungs, kidneys, just, it was horrific, absolutely horrific. The mouse limped across the road. It went into a nearby uh, music shop on the other side of Gray Street. I, I folded in, because obviously I, I thought I might be able to help somehow. And, and the mouse went to the shop owner, the music shop owner and said, have you got any mouse organs? And the music shop owner says, no, we don't have any mouse organs. And he said, you know what? You're the second mouse we've had in here in two days. And the mouse with his guts and organs everywhere went, oh, yes, that would be our moniker. And it's just stayed with me ever since. The dadness of that dad joke. It's a proper, it's a proper dad ladies, joke, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm trying. I, I came up with this idea to actually have, like, at some point, a serious meaningful rowing podcast not just like a promotion gig for my wife's artwork it is outstanding and if um, anyone, if anyone on the, is on the back behind that, me and aaron starts off by telling dad jokes um and, and, and this actually this is actually going to be quite serious and deeply meaningful podcast i'm, I'm shocked aaron i'm shocked no it, um i can't believe you think i made that up it genuinely happened these things happen in newcastle they happen all the time we've got dragons on the vertiginous cliffs and all sorts and if anyone is thinking of buying your your beloved wife's amazing artwork behind you bear in mind that i've already put a bid in on it i think it's fantastic okay yes um posh underscore logs at uh or at posh underscore logs at instagram check it out Anyway, so what are we um, talking about today? Lou, an old buddy, old friend, old colleague, old crewmate of mine. So first of all, I'd like to bang the drum again for Coastal Rowing because I, I it's really good fun, Aaron. You it that. really is. They, they've got so many things absolutely sorted out. Uh, why do I want to bang the drum for Coastal Rowing? Uh, because I went Coastal Rowing last Saturday. I also want to talk about, I think, the, the really quite profound importance in so many people's lives of rowing as a community and rowing as a sport. Um, because I actually went to a very sad occasion um, on Sunday, the day after the race, which was a wake 
for one of the, well for my my two man actually in the first boat I ever won a race in um, a guy called Dave de Villiers and it was you know so it involved going back to Hammersmith um, sitting next to the tideway drinking beer um, in the blue anchor as you do when you're a rower and you're sending someone off um, and it was a deeply affecting deeply meaningful kind of afternoon in my life and I just kind of realized how much how much these things matter and how much they kind of they enrich our lives being part of i suppose the communities that we're part of i'm, I'm not sure that i'm not sure that we talk about the rowing community but i think you know you you talk a lot about henley being a gathering of the tribes mm. and i think that that's what we are we are a series with many many different communities bound by this common thread of a slightly odd sport where we push very narrow boats down the flattest possible water we can find backwards. Um, and we spend hours just hauling on a handle on our own machine. Um, and these are very, very strange things, but for some reason they come together and I feel that they give our lives meaning and importantly, they give other people's lives meaning to us. Um, and so, yes, that was a, a very kind of big moment in my life. And I would also, um, I'm, I'm sending up a flare. I'm, I'm going to ask, uh, on behalf of my rowing club, Spitfire Boat Club, um, for financial aid from the rowing community, because we we have we are a very small club with very few resources, and we desperately need to tidy up some trees. Um, otherwise, we will go from having five kilometres of water to two kilometres of water very soon. So those are the things I want to talk about. What okay. do you want to talk about, Eric? I want to talk about those things with you, Lewin, old chapel buddy, old crewmate of mine. So let's talk about coastal rowing. Are you coastal rowing is brilliant. Don't even go there. I can't believe our friendship ends like this, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Can, can I ask a serious question? You're in the north. Go to Whitby and try it, man. Whitby's not the north. It's practically Birmingham. Um, <laughs> Where, when you bang the drum for coastal rowing, is this because for some reason you've just done a coastal rowing event and they've given you something shiny? Yes, they have. And that's it. So basically you're, you're essentially the rowing version of a magpie. If someone offers you something shiny, you will support it. Tell me why it's so wonderful. Okay. Well, first of all, it's utterly bonkers. You row on really rough, choppy water. You row on water that frankly makes home pier point on a bad nat schools regatta look like literally a storm in a bathtub it's 
you, it's waves, actual proper waves. But <coughs> the Tyne, I row on the Tyne. It's open to the North Sea. Yeah, but I mean, literally, you couldn't take a quad, a single, and eight would literally snap in half in okay. the water that we were on on Saturday. Okay. Um, what so obviously you you're rowing bigger, fatter, heavier boats. They right. don't fly, you know, um, or certainly the way we rode them, it didn't fly the way you can make a quad or eight fly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in, and it's not so much the glory of the rowing. The rowing is very much an art in itself. You can't, you do have to be very subtle with the oar handle, bizarrely, even though you're in a big, heavy boat. It's just really, really easy to make the oar slip. So you actually have to really be quite skillful on the drive. Can I ask a question? Yeah. You know what I'm going to ask. So what were you doing in the boat then? Rim shots? Uh, they they, they literally needed someone. Um, okay. But it's like, it's actually, it's the events themselves. So fundamentally, because you've got the sea, you don't necessarily have a particularly great restriction on the number of lanes. <laughs> do, do you see what I mean? It's kind of like, you can keep going out away from the beach. <coughs> are you, are you're you... going to race along the beach. Right. You, I mean, you're basically saying that you could have the first thousand lane regatta on a re relatively calm day. You have a lot of water to play with. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thousand lanes might be pushing it, but if, if, if you're going to start out, you know, four people in a race, if you've got eight people in a race you or eight boats in a race, you don't need to have a semi-final. You, okay. You're just going to, you're just going to go for it. Um, so in that there are no semifinals, you just go and you race and you work out, you work out who w wins right there. So that's okay. really nice. The racing itself is kind of bon bonkers. You've always got a second chance. You've got different ways to win because you don't just race in a straight line. You race out to a boy and back again. And when you, and, and because there's no real lanes, and they'll put down because they know they're going to have eight boats races. Mm -hmm. They'll put out eight boys. So if you're in a four boat race, you pick your boy. You pick your boy from a thousand yards away. And you say, like right, I'm going for that one. I'm going to go around it. And you hope nobody else has chosen that boy. When you say you pick your boy, you mean a floating thing, not in the sense. Yes, like a, yes, like a Aaron. Might. Just because I work in a public school. Well, I am um, a Roman. I am a Roman Catholic, and I'm deeply ashamed of all of that. So, um, you pick your boy. You pick your boy, and mm. you make a beeline for it. Now, okay. you can, of course, win the race just by rowing. So there are essentially two legs. There's the outward bound leg and the back backward leg, and you can win the race just by rowing faster than everyone else on those. Right. But you can also as we did, completely lose the race by stuffing up going around the boy. <laughs> right? Once you've gone around the boy, it's like an 800 meters race. So you know how they you go off on the 800 meters in your lane? Yeah. And then you go around the first corner and, and you all just come in 
like that. That's exactly what happens. Because nearly always, one side of the course is less rough than the other side of the course. So everybody Uh, piles onto that side. Right. So that's like, so then you're kind of literally jockeying for position and the best water. Fortunately, I was in the Cox boat. Otherwise, it gets a bit nuts. Um, with whoever you've gone around the boat with. But we stuffed up the turn. So we went from first going into the boys to fourth coming out of them, which was a bit rubbish. Okay. And then we clawed it back to second. So we just worked our way through the field, picking various people off one by one, and we we came second by half a length. Are and you... it was brilliant fun. And then, even though we only came second, they still gave me a medal. Second is first place loser, Lou, and that's what you always used to say at Agecroft. It may be, but it's a lot more fun. I had more fun than most people. You know, people were rowing on rivers or at Peterborough or at Dorney Lake or somewhere that weekend. There was a rowing race that weekend, okay? And, was- and the people who came second thought, well, I, I worked really, really hard to do that, and I've got nothing. I mean, literally nothing. I went home with a shiny bit of tin. You're basically saying that this is a cross between a family day out, which I imagine it was. Mm-hmm. The um, kids went swimming in the sea. Well, there you go. Um, you know, sharks, jellyfish, all recently spotted off, off Britain's coastal waters. Um, it's a cross, between, uh, a cross between a family day out, uh, room running in the 17th uh, century, a really, really good head race where fighting is allowed, and all of the best bits of rowing, which is basically knackering yourself by the time you get to the finish line. Yeah, essentially. And then, all right, okay, so this is the other big thing. There is a fundamental, because everything is part of a league. Right. So people, you obviously want to win your race. So if you're in like two or three or four races, you desperately want to win your race. But mm-hmm. because it's part of a league, you also, even if you come last, you get points. So you get points just for racing. So you're contributing to your team's advancement in the league. Just by turning up. Just, well, just by turning up and starting and finishing the race. So the competitive thing that you and I have been talking about, you know, how do we get away from the more, I mean, okay, some of, I will not hear a word said against Rutherford Head. You and I will probably not hear a word said against Runcorn Head unless you and I are actually saying it. Um, but the competitive thing that we've been looking for that actually brings clubs together and brings communities together and actually creates those days, those days out moments that you remember and that you work towards. Yeah. You're saying that um, coastal rowing is, and and you can put your hand on your heart, say that Jack Beaumont hasn't got to you and nobbled you. Hodge, no. after his recent round, round Britain coastal row, hasn't nobbled you. This is all off your own bat. It's all no. off my own bat. Genuinely, I really do think they've got the incentives right to get, there's this big thing of like, it, you're not gonna, okay, so for instance, if I at Spitfire Boat Club 
was going to be sly. What I would do is I would start ringing around American universities in around about March and saying, are any of you, look, all we need is we're going to get four massive lads to join the club who are all like under 19 year old Americans and we'll put a quad together and they're all going to have like sub 552Ks. We'll stick them in this quad and we'll say, oh, look, they all joined on April the 13th and we'll smash it down the river. We'll beat everyone and spit by a boat club. We'll have won the Prince of Wales and we'll be magnificently famous. And everybody will think, who doesn't look too closely at these things, that were absolutely wonderful. That doesn't work in coastal running because there is no one big race. What you're aiming for is to get results consistently, race after race after race, and you're looking to put as many crews out as possible, race after race after race, so there is this really big incentive. It's not about the point of the spear. It's not about your best crew. It's about the shaft of the spear. Yeah. It's, it's about having strength and depth in your club. It's basically promoting club activity. Yeah. It's, it's promoting clubs to get out there and race at each other's events, have days out, yeah. have, a bit, have a bit of fun. Um, and foster the, the the community spirit that we've talked about as being intrinsic to the British rowing experience, but it's one that a lot of clubs are struggling with, especially as you also, you know, uh, backhandedly pointed out, some clubs are somewhat padding some of their entries into the more prestigious events and selling themselves on the back of it. We've already covered that, so I'm not bringing it back up, but it's basically, it's a grassroots club day out for all ages and all abilities and when the weather's nice and the water doesn't have any killer whales or polar bears in it no one's going to lose a leg yeah it's funny it's funny we should like bring up that slightly sensitive subject because there were i mean let's face it we were ringing i mean ringing is kind of like like you said you want to get more boats on the water so yeah. it's okay to bring people in who are from other clubs that's yeah. kind of like an accepted bit of coastal rowing or more or less accepted okay yeah. um so there was a bunch of kind of half hern bay half spitfire guys who who joined the club but you know we we don't you know we've joined cara okay. um coastal amateur rowing association and so we had every right to be there right there were other ringers doing the same thing. Okay. Can you guess which club they were from? I wouldn't like to possibly guess, but there are clubs in British rowing at the moment that have a bit of a history of it. <laughs> and, and, and do you think they were like possibly sporting their um, emblazoned white and red trucker caps for all to see? Good God. How de <laughs> classe. And I say that as a northerner. They're telling you who they are. It's really quite shocking. But anyway, um, no, it may just be a habit, but you've got to remember it is fundamentally, it is part of the sport. You know, nobody minds if you're getting, because the big part of it is you've got to have more than a certain number of boats in a race to make it count for points. Yeah. Everybody's happy if 
another boat turns up. Okay. Does okay. So, so again, it's about bringing people. It's about having the right incentives to bring people in the sport. So you've got a league. So every, so literally every boat counts. You've got, again, the league point system means that coming second is valuable okay. and means something as well as coming third and coming fourth. Okay. So everybody's contribution gets valued. It's a highly competitive race. So coming first is valued. It's bonkers and it's genuinely because there's so much rough water, you've got to go around the turns. Um, you've got to choose your line on the way back. It's not over till it's over. Okay. You know, so if like, if somebody's got a length on you with 300 to go, that's, you're moving quite slowly. So that's about a minute and 20 seconds. Right. So A, you've got a long time to get back to them. And B, if they, if their cox chooses to go through the wrong bit of water and your cox chooses to go through the right bit of water, you're going to get them. And we did. It was great fun. So there's none of this stuff at, at regattas big and small over the summer where basically if you're down off the start, then you're done. Yeah. Uh, unless you're very good. And it's, it's none of that stuff at head racing where, you know, you, you, you put a boat out for fun and you haven't really trained and you get completely mullered by someone who's, you know, basically dedicated what's left of their life to winning as much tin as possible in your master's category. So yeah, absolutely. Do these, does this rowing league kind of extend around the country or is it more based so in your area or? It's, it's very much, so there is a local rowing league. Okay. Um, so it's, it's basically, it's the Southeast. So if you're going to draw a line from, I imagine the Medway where that dumps itself into the Thames estuary mm. all around the North coast of Kent around the east, so past over Folkestone, and then all the way into Hastings and Bexley Heath. Um, can I ask, a, can yeah, I ask a serious health and safety question? When you come back around the boy and you're heading for home, is there not a serious danger that Pretty Patel's naval destroyers will shoot you as migrants trying to get onto English beaches? It all adds to the fun of it. Just checking. But we did take our passports. Okay. Well, in which case, this is a this is I have to say a heartfelt pain to um, the joys of coastal rowing, and our, our friendship, which was nearly over, you've argued so passionately and eloquently that I I will I'll consider whether or not we'll stay in contact. Yeah, and I and I haven't even discussed the start yet. The start's <laughs> equally bonkers. So you 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 don't have you don't have people holding your stern, right? Just careful like that. They've essentially got two pylons and you've got to be past those pylons but not in front of the other two pylons and oh, when you're like, all lined up somebody from the bank with a megaphone shouts go and well, being all lined up can be a very very questionable people some people can be backing down and some people can be rowing through when they say go okay and with this this might be a level of home club advantage but the start again real work of art there's there's a lot to be said for the start is it not just bury your blade in the nearest porpoise and, and pull as hard as you possibly can no can't do it 
if you, if you just it, yank in on it, all that happens is the blade slips through the water and the boat just goes, I'm heavy. I ain't moving. This sounds like too much of a technical challenge for yours truly. I, I mean, if it's not it's, two halves, three, three quarters, and then basically rip the handle off it, then that's not a proper start, Lou, and I'm telling you. Okay, genuinely, you can have a scenario where bow and two are backing down where when stroke and three are are on their second stroke because okay you're getting different signals you're getting signals from the start box you're getting signals from the cocks it's carnage it's carnage and it's brilliant um and you do you do need to get a good start because you, you don't want to get le left it there's not a lot of like kind of change of speed going on there it really isn't okay. so basically if anyone out there is listening to this and at this point you'll realize we don't have a guest so you you probably won't have stuck around to hear them being interesting and it's just us two again and you're anywhere near a coastal location or a coastal event and your name isn't Jack Bowman or Andy Hodge. I hear Andy has said that if anyone sees him near a boat again, they have permission to shoot him. Don't shoot him. He's a national treasure. Get yourself along. Get involved in coastal rowing. Give it a go. Take the children. Uh, take a picnic. Uh, yep. Buy ice creams. Do all of the things that we, we have to do in what's left of the summer and get out there and try something new. And uh, it sounds like a blast. And you might get medals. Indeed. Even for coming second. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, and... If you have the opportunity to drag somebody from British rowing along to see how it all works, please do that as well. Because, you know, we've got our traditions, but I really do think that actually there's a lot to be said for the traditions of coastal rowing that could positively influence the traditions of river and flat water rowing. Yeah, I think there's a sense of community and fun there that sounds good. And if you happen to see uh, Archie and Ethan from Small Erg's Big Dreams, then drag them along as well, because to be quite frankly honest, they deserve to go coastal rowing. Young gods, both of them. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was Saturday. And Saturday okay. was very a exciting. Good day. Uh, yeah. And then Sunday, uh, as I said, I went to the wake of Dave de Villiers, my old Furnival um, sculling club crewmate. And Dave was an extraordinary character. He was essentially a builder. He, or he, he managed projects. He was a project manager, but he started off as just a flat out builder. Um, but he was very successful, um, had a lovely flat in Hammersmith, um, very strong, very fit. I have terrifying memories of trailing him for the last, for the first 800 meters of a thousand meter test that we were made to do a week before Peterborough. And just thought, my God, he's going to beat me. He's actually, he's really going to beat me. Um, and I just about pipped him in the last, about the last 50 meters I got ahead of him. Um, 
And yeah, he was part of, I suppose, my novice crew. He, he was the guy I won my first pot with. On the Tideway? No, uh, at Peaceborough. Okay. So um, novice, back, back in the days of novice racing, novice, senior, four, senior, three, senior, two, senior, one. Archie, uh, Ethan, if you're listening, ask your mum and dad what novice is. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, back in the days, uh, none of this club and champ nonsense. And it was Cox 4. It was an old Gilbert with um, flotation bags in it. I, well, actually, I don't even know if it had got to the point where they'd forced us to put the flotation bags under the open cross-hatched wooden decking. You rode in an, in, in an, alley, an uh, illegal boat, Lewin, an illegal uh, no, boat. No, it wasn't illegal at the time. Okay. It, it genuinely, we had heel restraints. It wasn't illegal. Oh, well, that's fine. Um, but, you know, it was a stern-loading boat. It was actually really nice. I had some great races in that boat. That, that was the boat in which I learned to hate Thames Rampart. And you got in early, but I've joined you since because of their cheating, lying ways, moving on swiftly. Moving, moving on swiftly. Um, but yeah, so. So this is formative. Awesome day. And it was, it obviously, it was a novice crew. It was a bunch of guys who liked to drink as much as they liked to race. It was a great crew to hang around with. Um, it was a classic novice crew. Ethan and Archie would have slotted in, like, you know, they hand in glove. They'd have been there. They'd have loved it. Um, I can't believe that, you know, I came away with it completely unscathed, um, given the utterly stupid things we got, we got up to. Um, it was a different era. And, and what I realised on Sunday when I met everybody who who came to this, and it really it was just lunch and some drinks um, on the riverbank, that it was a completely different era that you could, honest to God, you could just, the things we said that now, if they had been recording, would almost certainly lead to us being fired from whatever jobs we had, possibly being arrested almost certainly being arrested um are you talking about the, the almost now forgotten art because teenagers grow up at the age of five now are you talking about the long forgotten art of being young and daft and irresponsible and having fun and irresponsible and it being 2006 and nobody having a fully functioning motion camera with a boom microphone on it um and yeah it was a brilliant crew and that that crew that you know so there were two cox fours we were racing against each other from Furnival. we were racing against we went through a heat a semi-final and a final um so you know properly competitive rowing and we, you know, we came out on top in that one. Then we all piled in to an eight about 20 minutes later, and we won the eights race as well. Um, and that crew was not the best crew I've ever rode with. 
they were not the strongest crew I've ever rode with. They were not the most experienced or talented crew I've ever rode with, but they were one of the very few crews who had absolutely no doubt in my mind that they would kill themselves to get across the line first. Um, and honest to God, uh, th there's a there's a world rowing. Uh, there's a world rowing video came out years ago now, and it was all about what makes the perfect international rower. And one of the coaches that was talking about it said, uh, some of them have got like these incredible physiologies. Some of them are technically perfect. And some of them, to be honest, they're just hard as nails and know how to race. And basically we put <laughs> at least seven out of the eight guys in that boat slotted into that category right there. Just hard as nails, knew how to race. We had a great Cox who, <laughs> who was absolutely slumming it with us. I mean, literally, she was like Oxford lightweight, Isis. She, she, she had coxed some of the best rowers in the country. And then she just hung around with us for two summers. Um, brilliant. And Dave was part of that crew. Um, and he was, you know, he was a naturally gifted athlete. I mean, he must have been, he was South African. Um, and they all are, absolutely. It's just yeah. It's, it's nature of the beast. It's a little bit like Australians, you know, it's the nature of the beast. Yeah. Um, it, it's a hard, tough country. And if they've survived this long, they must be physically pretty um, adaptable. And um, yeah. And so essentially he's the first of the old gang to die, which was, you know. Sobering? I mean, sorry? Sobering? Very sobering um obviously this is a this is a podcast about men of a certain age doing mm. a ridiculous sport and as men of a certain age i feel that we consider our mortality and the meaning of our lives more and more as the years go past and when you literally you remember this guy who was if not quite as fit as you, certainly stronger than you. Dying before the age of 50. It is a, it's a very, very kind of like, oh, right, okay. And Dave being absolutely his own man, never told any of us. He, you know, he, he'd moved back to South Africa for a long time. Um, he actually came back to London for treatment. And even when he was in London, and a lot of his old crewmates were in London, he never contacted us. He never got in touch. And we, you know, and, and he actually died close to two and a half years ago now. And for me, You know, it, it's a much greater tragedy for his family, um, for his friends in South Africa, who'd known him all his life. But I knew him for 18 months. And 
the thing I almost regret about the fact that he never spoke to us before he died, that he was dying, was that I never got the chance to say to him that because of this very strange sport that we do, because of the struggles that we went through together, his life for that time had meaning to me and to all those people around him and not everybody could be there people are in different clubs people have got families they're in different continents um but we yeah it is it is this idea that we he gave our lives more meaning and his life meant something to us. And I greatly regret not being able to tell him that. And I greatly sort of regret. Oh, no. Oh, God. And I think the importance of that is something that we shouldn't underestimate as rowers who are part of this this like network of little communities or little tribes that are bound by this single common thread um, of this interest and passion and constant almost daily effort that we share um, to push a boat backwards across the water. And you can say, you know, and people have told me it is the world's most pointless sport. It's not a life skill. And I think they're probably right. But what I think those people don't appreciate is the value and meaning that that brings to the lives of people who are in their sport. And I I think that's a really, really important thing that I would like to just encourage our listeners to take a moment to think about and also remember if they have lost crewmates, if there are people in their past who are no longer there that they can talk to, coming together with the people who shared, even if it's just that brief period of time, shared their lives, is an immensely rewarding and life-affirming thing to do. And so, sorry to be a slight downer. I hope I've like brought it up to a slightly more positive note by the end of this podcast. But I do think that whatever anybody says to you, rowing matters. I think that's a fitting eulogy for David, and I think it was very well expressed about something we don't often talk about, which is there is a certain magic in this sport whereby the shared experiences, however briefly, in some circumstances, can create memories and define lives in ways that last forever. Yeah. Yeah. And they do last forever. And yeah. You know, that day, that bright August day that I won my first part, you know, I won that with 
Leila Hudson. I won it with Eddie Mann. I won it with Charlie and I won it with Dave. And that that will remain with me as long as I keep my marbles. <laughs> and that will be until I believe next week you're having your marble surgically removed. Is that true? On my current standards of what I can remember and not remember, I'll just misplace them somewhere. No, um, but yes. I'll, I'll send you a new set, mate. Thank no, you. I very think much. that is a fitting, a fitting eulogy. It says it's, it speaks very directly to me about my some of my own experiences in rowing, um, some of the things that perhaps brought you and I together as well. And David sounds like a pretty remarkable man. And I think that's a fitting eulogy for him and also for what this sport can do for people. Indeed. Now, as I said, there was one thir third thing that I want to do. I wish to, um, you know, and the... So I'm going to leave a link in the description to this. And if you're still listening, I would really like you to consider clicking on that link to the crowdfunder website, um, because you may or may not remember that I'm member, a member of a very, very small boat club uh, in East Kent called the Spitfire Boat Club. And we have very few resources. We don't have a boat that is um younger than 17 years old i think we yeah so our youngest boat was built in 2005 um we our boathouse is a slatted wooden shed with a concrete floor next to a river we are lucky enough to have a pontoon landing stage which is very nice but that is literally the most expensive piece of kit that we own um our club coffers are stable but tiny and so we i am asking our listeners for help and i'm asking our listeners for financial help because we have a very rowable uh very decent stretch of water um on the stour that's about five and a half kilometers long and it's got a couple of really decent kind of raceable straights on it uh but it's also it's actually quite a wild river um it or it's certainly an uncurated river it, it's not a lot of money goes into clearing up the riverbanks because it's essentially on farmland it, it doesn't run through a town it's there isn't a site of massive natural beauty nearby uh we love it but it's fundamentally a river in a very shallow valley that used to be flooded back in roman times and we are in real danger of one of the straits on that river being overgrown by willow trees we're not really in a position to cut those willow trees back ourselves some of them have collapsed into the river and are actually are quite dangerous in terms of a danger to rowers and the danger to rowing boats and a danger to all river traffic. Um, and we need to pay a man to come along with a chainsaw and chainsaw bits of these trees away. 
And this is not something we can do in a piecemeal fashion. We have to do it before October the 1st, because on October the 1st, there is new legislation coming in to protect beavers. We have beavers on the River Stour. As you do, protect those beavers. Okay. Which is, we don't have beavers on this particular strait that is getting overgrown. Um, but if that strait does get overgrown, if it becomes impassable and unroyable, um, we'll only have two kilometers of water instead of five kilometers, five and a half kilometers of water, which would be vastly less fun. Um, there are no beavers that we know of on that stretch of water, so we will not be harming any beavers, but there will be a pretty much a blanket ban on any work done on the banks of that river by October the 1st. So we really need to get our man with his chainsaw and a boat cutting these willow trees back by the last week of September. And so uh, we're looking at a budget of something like £1,250. Um, so this is, not, this is not a huge amount of money. This is 125 people putting their hand in their pocket, putting in a tenner, um, and we would be hugely grateful if you, our listeners, would consider supporting Spitfire Boat Club and, in fact, all of the river users of the East Kent Stour to cut these trees back and ensure that we have a navigation channel that we can use. So that is my, that is my begging mission. So uh, thank you for your consideration. Would it help if possibly someone in the Canterbury, Kent area, uh, like a tree surgeon who might hear this and offer to help out, would that be received well as well? We, we, we have a man. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, we have our quote. We have a guy who is actually quite experienced at clearing riverbanks. He's done this before. Okay. Uh, bizarrely enough, he's done this before to make um, an area of water more rowable specifically right. he knows entirely what he's doing um so joe phillips if you're listening um thank you very much for um putting in the time to come and see the club uh joe is actually an experienced rower uh and we are strongly hoping that he is going to be joining the club and rowing with us um okay so given that we've never asked any of our listeners for anything other than their forbearance and tolerance where why we basically make this up as we go along yeah we're basically asking for uh if people wouldn't mind putting in a tenor or putting in whatever they could afford to help out a very worthy boat club james loon and manny have done worked wonders in actually getting it up and going and keeping it going and i think that um i'll certainly put my hand in my pocket which it believe me is a rarity where loon is concerned and um, let's try and get that so that Spitfire can stay in operation and keep rowing. Yeah, thank you very much. And on that note, I think that's the end of the pod. Okay. Right, let's call it. Good night, Thank everyone. you very much. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>